And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, 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 three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the bird and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham, Abram, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the, these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim. Rephaim? This is the word of God. You may be seated. Great job, Jeb. Those are difficult words to pronounce. And I just asked him literally before I came up here to do it, so he had no time to prepare. You did an excellent job. We appreciate this. This is the word of God. Every week when I come up here to preach, we start the same way. Open up your Bibles and keep them open. I will be preaching God's word. I will not be preaching to you my, thought, my deep thoughts from Pastor Jason for the week. Like, don't put ketchup in macaroni and cheese. Um, that's not what I'm up here to do. Um, I'm up here to tell you the word of God. So open up your Bibles, go to the very beginning, go to the table of contents. There you will see 66 documents over a period of generations. They will be split into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you ever wonder what the word testament really means, we even understand in English, you know, if you give a testimony or your last will and testament, it comes from the Greek word, which means a covenant so we have the old covenant and we have the new covenant. It's the first covenant. Um, this today that we've read, that, that uh, Jeb had read today, is the first covenant God will make with an individual, but it'll be the second major covenant God makes to humanity. It is the first covenant he makes with an individual, but that covenant has a lot to do with you and me today. We've been going through this series on patriarchs. And so to do the, the same kind of TV show vernacular, last time on Patriarchs. Last time on Patriarchs, we talked about the promises God spoke over Abram. You know, when you look at this, when you look at the Old Testament, we're tempted to be like, well, this is a nice bit of history, but what does this mean for me today? Well, God made promises over Abram. In chapter 12, he promised him land. At the end of chapter 11, in fact, and at the beginning of chapter 12, God makes his first promise to Abram. His promise is to take him to a land of promise and make him a great nation. That actually, though, that actually through this nation, this nation would bless the whole world. It would require him to leave everything he knew and go to a land that God would promise. This wasn't yet, from Abram's perspective, a covenant, but just a promise. In chapter 13, in chapter 13, God, after after Lot, after the final last bit of his family splits from Abram, in fact, this was God's direction to Abram at the beginning to leave his kindred and go to the land God had promised. But instead, he went with his kindred around where the land God had promised. After his dad dies, he goes into the land of promise, but he, he includes his nephew Lot. And in chapter 13, Lot separates from Abram, and then he hears from God. So he just lost the last bit of his family, and now he hears from God telling him, his offspring 
would inherit the land. Now, you may think in chapter 12, making him a great nation, that includes offspring, and it does, but God wants him to know, no, this is what I mean. I don't mean symbolically. I don't mean in a certain point of view, like Obi-Wan might say. No, I mean you will have children. In chapter 13, God speaks of Abraham's offspring. This is a promise, but not what Abraham would see as a covenant. All of God's promises are covenants. We'll get into that a bit later, but... There's, this, is, this is a promise that God makes with him, but there, and there is no promise that God has not kept. But for Abram, from his understanding, this was not yet a covenant. In chapter 14, we see the first war in, recorded in history, recorded in the scriptures, and it's between four kingdoms against five. The four kingdoms wipe out the five, and then Abram, him and his nomads, take them to task and beat the daylights out of them it is, it is such, a, it's such a mismatch that a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek sees it and he's like, I got to bless this guy. And he blesses Abram. So after victory, after being blessed by this priest of the Lord, the Lord comes to Abram and he tells him that he is his shield and he is his great reward. And Abram in response says, I get that, but where are the children that you promised me? That is difficult. And last week in the first half of chapter 15 or verses one through six, we talked about Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. There is nothing Abram does where God says, now you are righteous. He believes the word of God and it's credited to him as righteousness. When you come before the Lord one day, when you die and you enter into his presence and he says, why should I let you in here? If your response is anything other than because of your son, Jesus Christ, it's something wrong. It's like, because I did this, because I did that, because I was baptized, because I said a prayer once. No, it's because I am counting completely on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Or as Alistair Begg had mentioned last week in that little video, it's because the man on the middle cross says, I can come. Abram believed God before circumcision, before the law was given, before baptism, before communion, before all other things that we see as rituals or whatever, it says Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness came by grace through faith. That faith came by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If we see the Old Testament as God's plan A, and the New Testament is God's plan B, we are missing it. Because before all the stuff right there, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The covenants of God are progressively revealing to us the very nature of who God is. It's not plan A, B, C, and D, but it is, a, it is revealing to us who God is. Last week, the main point of, of verse six, it was verse six. This week, the main point will be verse 17. Last week, I told you that the faithfulness of God is the bedrock originator and sustainer of our faith. Today, I want to tell you that God's promises are grounded in himself and in him alone. And that makes all the difference because if they're grounded in you, you're in trouble. If they're grounded in your behavior, if they're grounded in your temperament, you're in trouble. But if they're grounded in him and him alone, it's no one can take this from you. And you cannot, you cannot mess it up for yourself. Because God's faithfulness, the rest of scripture, we will see a major difference between God's faithfulness and man's unfaithfulness. You know what the most boring stories are? You know what the most boring stories are in movies, TV, radio, um, books? It's when you have characters who are practically perfect in every way. Even Mary Poppins was a liar, so she was interesting, you know what I mean? You know, the bad stories are ones in which the protagonist is practically perfect in every way. We say that they're fairy stories, they're fairy tales, and people see the scripture as a fairy tale. Well, no, it's not, because we see Abram here, the man of faith, the patriarch of the Jewish people where the Messiah came from, and so far, what we've been told, he tried to prostitute his own wife out to save his own skin. Abram's not the hero of Abram's story, but God is. There's only, room, there's only room for one perfect one, and it is God himself. 
heroes like Abraham, like Isaac, like Jacob, the patriarchs, they mess up in ways that honestly would make us gasp. Some people like to see the scriptures, especially the Old Testament here, as kind of morality plays, but that, that really runs into a lot of problems. Like if, you, if you're online, if you're in social media, you see those really silly Darman videos. I don't know if anybody else knows what I'm talking about. Like, like something really crazy happens and then they give you the moral of the story. They're like, see, treat people the way you want to be treated. And it always makes me laugh, but I watch like a hundred of them at a, at a time. That's not what the Old Testament is. It's not morality plays. The story of Abram is not a morality play because what do you do then when he goes to Egypt? And this is what people will say, the Bible supports immorality. No, it's telling you that the hope is not in Abram. It's not in your own actions. But Abram believed God and it was credit to him as righteousness. So last week, verses one through six, I talked about Abram asking God, where are these children? Now, starting in verse seven, he's gonna say, how do I know that the land you promised I will really inherit. I will really get, my offspring will really get. How do I know? It's like a Whitney Houston song, right? How will I know if he really loves me? God's like, I'll tell you how. I'm going to show you how. I'm going to make a covenant with you, Abram, in a way that you understand, that you will know that I keep my promises. So I talked about covenant, and that's what the scripture says in verse 18, that God makes a covenant with Abram. But what is a covenant? A covenant's like an agreement, but it's more than an agreement. A covenant is like a promise, but it's more than a promise. A covenant is like a contract, but it's so much more than a contract. In Abram's time, to break a covenant resulted in the death penalty, and it was a death penalty you asked for when you made the covenant. There were blessings associated with keeping the covenant and curses in, in breaking it. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage is not a contract, it's not an agreement, it is a covenant we have with the Lord. So while in Iowa we may have no-fault divorce, the Lord does find fault. I remember I was speaking actually with another pastor this week and we were reminiscing um, because we were talking about different things with marital, marital counseling. And we were talking about a time we were speaking with another pastor who was telling us about a person in their congregation. I know that's a lot of pastors, but let me get to the point, which is... This pastor was telling us about a person in their congregation, a couple, and the wife was going to divorce the husband because the husband had an illness, a uh, really bad illness, and they were going to lose the property and the money, so she was going to divorce him. And then he had, he had sent back to her, I guess, um, for richer or poorer, it doesn't mean much. And they thought that was out of bounds. And me and this other pastor, we were saying, no, it's not out of bounds, because that is what that means. And she might divorce him in the state of Iowa, may, may recognize that, but the Lord does not. And he doesn't care what the state of Iowa has to say. Because when you said, I do, you made a covenant. A covenant isn't done away with. It's either broken or kept. There are five major biblical covenants in the Old Testament these are the five um, major covenants that God made with mankind. Do not see this as plan A, B, C, D, and E, but a revealing of the character and nature of God. One does not do away with another. Each one builds on each other until we can see Jesus Christ. They give greater clarity to the ones that came before them. Thank you. I was going to ask you to fill this up. You're on the spot, Andrew. Is that who's back there? All right, good job. Um, we have the Noahic. So after God floods the world, he makes a covenant with mankind. It's an unconditional covenant in which he will not flood the world again. And the sign of the covenant is the rainbow. God takes, think of a war bow. God takes his war bow and he puts it back on earth. So every time we see the rainbow, we see the sign of God's covenant. He will not destroy the earth again with, with water. The Abrahamic covenant, that's the one we're talking about today. The sign for the Abrahamic covenant is circumcision. The Mosaic Covenant, the sign for the Mosaic Covenant is the law itself and also the Sabbath, and it is the, God's law. And this covenant, which follows very similar to the covenant we're going to talk about today, it, had, it was conditional. You follow the law, God will bless you. You break the law, God will curse you. When Elijah saw that the people of God and his nation were following the Baals, he confronts the king and then he prays earnestly for it not to rain. He was doing so because of that covenant. He was saying, God, fulfill your promise. 
I imagine Elijah is not a guy a lot of people would like to have around. <laughs> Remind me of the nice ones, not the, not the non-nice one. The Davidic covenant. This is where God promises King David that a descendant of his would sit on the throne. This is unconditional and conditional. For just being a son of David, David in his lineage did not guarantee you longevity on the throne. In fact, there is no descendant of David on a physical throne, but there is a descendant of David who is on the throne of eternity, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he has fulfilled the divinic covenant forever. The new covenant. The new covenant actually begins in the Old Testament. It's prophesied in the Old Testament. Many, many different places, but the exact wordage is in Jeremiah in which God promises to give you a new heart. That no person will say to each other, know the Lord, for they will know him. That covenant was sealed in blood at Calvary. And it was accepted on Easter morning, on resurrection morning. During our Holy Week, we are going to be looking at the covenant, the new covenant. Very much like the way we are seeing this covenant, the preparation, the terms of the covenant, and then the cutting or signing of the covenant. What does it mean that God is a covenant-keeping God? It means that God keeps his promises. And it means so much more than that too, because he keeps your end of the promises as well. If I were to take the time to dive into each of these covenants, some of them are unconditional, some of them are conditional, as I was mentioning here. God keeps his end of the promise, yes. But it's more than that. In Jesus Christ, he kept your part too. Because you didn't. There was a song I remember from Skillet that they probably don't even want to remember that they made. It's a good song, though. I think it's awesome. It's, it, the chorus goes, he is more faithful than the changing of seasons. John Cooper probably didn't grow up in Iowa because that's not saying much. <laughs> the changing of seasons are not faithful around here. Well, we get the point, right? That he's more faithful than even the sun rising in the morning. There will come a day when the sun will not rise in the morning. Sorry, Annie. But the sun, S-O-N, will always rise in the morning. We will not need the light of the sun. We will not need the light of a lamp. He will be our light, and he will wipe every tears from our eyes. And the kings and their kingdoms will bow before the seed of Abram. For this first covenant between God and an individual, it's the second major covenant, the, second covenant, the first covenant he makes with an individual as opposed to all of humanity. These are three things in this scripture as we go along. We're going to point out the preparation of the covenant. Two, the terms of the covenant. And three, the cutting or signing of the covenant. Our series on Holy Week will look at the new covenant in the same way. Next week, it'll be the preparation from the, of the covenant in the triumphal entry. On Good Friday, we'll talk about how that covenant, the terms of it, and how it was sealed. And on Easter morning, we'll find out the covenant was fulfilled and is good. I'm excited for it. I hope you are too. Um, preparation for the covenant. For, starting in verse 7. So I hope you have your Bibles open. Even if I don't say verse 7, verse 8, I'm going along that order. You can follow along with me here. As we get into this, I want to I point out something that we don't understand, but the people who it was written to and Abram understood. And that is how a covenant was done in his day. In history, in archaeology, we call it the Vassal Suzerian Covenant format. The Vassal Suzerian Covenant format. University of Michigan professor George Mendenhall in the publication Biblical Archaeologist, September 1954, outlines the archaeological evidence that that fits perfectly with what we see here in the covenant God makes with Abram. There are two basic types of covenant that existed in the ancient Near East. You had the parity covenant treaty. This is between two equal parties. Then you had the Caesarian vassal treaty, and this is between a greater and a lesser party. In a Caesarian vassal um, treaty, the greater party, i.e. the Caesarian, provided benefits such as military protection, land grants, and other such benefits to the lesser party, i.e. the vassal. In response, the vassal owned, owed the Caesarian financial tribute and compensation, and more importantly, loyalty for the provision for, of the Caesarian. 
the, who they would call their Lord or Father. To take another Caesarean, to take another covenant, would be seen as a traitorous act incurring the wrath that the covenant had outlined in its stipulations. They had a repeated format. The Caesarean, the, the higher party, the king, whomever, would, would be like, I am King Alibaba. I am the one who fills your granaries with, with, with grain. I am the one who protects you from your enemies. And I pledge to do that for eternity or whatever. And then you have the vassal and he's like, he's like, I, Aladdin, promise to um, give to you a tenth of the riches of Agrabah or whatever. Um, and then they would walk through the sacrifice. And the meaning of that is, if I should break this, then please do to me what we just did to these animals. It is incurring on yourself a curse if you break it, but a blessing if you keep it. Exodus 20 follows the same format that we see in verse 7 here when he says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you the land to possess. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, the Lord tells the people of Israel, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It is a declaration of the identity of the Caesarean of the greater party to the lesser party and what they have done for them. What, God has, brought, what has God brought you out of personally? That's your testimony. And it's not just something in the past, it's ongoing. He's currently bringing you out of this world. He's making you holy as he is holy. We call this sanctification, becoming more like Jesus Christ. This, your testimony is not just something that's happened one time, it's ongoing. It's constant. God reaffirming, reaffirming his promises to you that truly he's forgiven your sins, not just past, but present and future as well. What has God brought you out of? That's your testimony. It's not just one thing either. It's a multitude of things for it is all things. It's many and it's continual. And most of which you have no idea about. Can you imagine when you get to heaven, God's going to explain to you all the protection he put over your life. No wonder he has to wipe every tear from her eye, right? Sometimes I'm out running. So I'm thinking in the physical right here. I'm out running and I miss a car by an inch. Could have been dead. Could have easily been dead. I know many other people who got hit by a car and died when they were running in the mornings. But I missed by an inch. So I wonder how many times God has protected my physical life. How many times he's protected my mental well-being as well by providing for me rest when I needed rest, just like Elijah when he was in the midst of, of turmoil? How many times he's protected me spiritually, not allowing me to be tempted beyond what I can bear? You are constantly in the exodus because he is constantly separating you from this world, making you holy as he is holy. So the Lord... He begins this. He, he says who he is, what he has done. He has brought him out of the earth, Chaldees. He has taken him to a land that he will possess. That was the first part of the promises that God had made him. And what does Abram say in response? Number, verse 9. He says to him, I'm sorry, verse 8. But he said, O Lord, O Lord God. Just to let you know, Lord right here is Adonai, means supreme. God right here, I believe, is Elohim, the generic word for God. So the most supreme God. How am I to know that I shall possess it? So, you know, he's singing that Whitney Houston ballad, right? How will I know? You know, you wonder, it's like, how, how is he back here? Because we just had verse six, right? Verse six is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. I think what we need to understand is that our faith is given by God, but we still have doubts. We still have things that creep in because our faith is not perfect. It is in one who is. Abram doubted the promises, promise of the offspring, so God brings him out and shows him the stars, and he believes God. Now in verse 8, he asks, who am I to know? The other part of this promise, I think it's important to accept that our faith isn't perfect. It's in one who is. Doubt, for many reasons, creeps in, even for the most faithful. You know who Jesus said the best guy who's ever lived was? John the Baptist. He says, there is no person born of woman greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the first person to identify Christ in the New Testament when he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist was a guy, I mean, he was radical. He's wearing, 
He's wearing camel skin. He's eating locusts dipped in honey. He is, he's getting the face of the religious elites. He calls them a brood of vipers. Don't tell me your father's Abraham. One of these stones God can make, it, uh, can make a child of Abraham. He is more pious. He is more religious, more zealous than anybody here. And when he was put into prison because he was fighting for what was right, day after day, day after day, no, no freedom, Nothing happened at the 11th hour. No angel comes while he's praising God to break the chains. And he's sitting there and he's wondering, hey God, remember me? You know, I'm the one who talked, told people about your son. How come I'm still in here? And his disciples come and they start talking to him. He's like, go, go, go talk to my cousin and ask him, are you really the one or should we wait for another? Have you ever been in that place of bitterness? It's a, it's a sad, sad place. It's a place I wouldn't, worse on, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. It makes you doubt things that you know. You really, really know. Abram, he, so he, he tells God, how, how, how will I know that I'll possess the promised land? I don't think he's quite there in that place of bitterness, but he's wondering, how will you reveal this to me? That I, that I really will possess this land that you have been talking to me about. So then in verse 9, God gives him a shopping list. That's what it seems like to us. I'm going to explain it, but that's what it seems like to us. Verse 9, and he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Verse 10, and he brought all these things, cut them in half. To us, this seems really out of place and weird, right? Why would God, you're like, God, I'm just having a hard time believing the promises. And God's like, go to Fairway and pick up some Fairlife milk. And you're like, what? It wasn't like this to Abram. He knew what God was doing. He knew what God was talking about. And it had everything to do with covenants in his time. It's like, ah. Oh. God doesn't tell him to split them in half. He does it because he knows what to do. He doesn't, then, he doesn't then ask God again, are you sure this is really your will for me to do this? This is what we do. We have lead poisoning a lot. We get lead poisoning all the time. We see what was right in God's word. We know what is cor the correct thing to do, but we're like, I don't feel led to do it though. That's, that's our trump card to get out of obedience, right? I know this is right. I know this is what God wants me to do, but I don't feel led to do it. That sounds so spiritual and God is not fooled in the least bit. He knows what to do. He knows what God wants him. And this is the thing about Abram. He does it right away. He really does believe God. He really does have faith, saving faith. So he gets these things, he splits them in two, and he understands. He understands what God is about to do. In fact, he is eager for it. He's so eager, he stays with the sacrifices. And in verse 11, and when birds of prey, vultures came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. Verse 11 is exactly what it seems. Abram is actively waiting on the Lord. He, I talked before, he had a doubt that didn't deny the promises, but desired the promises. What's God going to do here? He has a bunch of dead bodies of, of animals, and vultures come to eat them. On the surface, there doesn't really seem to be much spiritual meaning, and really there isn't much spiritual meaning other than actively waiting. Abram, Abram believes that God is going to show up again, and until he does, he will do what he's asked until, un, until the Lord shows up. In Matthew 24, verses 28, Jesus gives this as an illustration for what he's talking about with the end times. He gives a lot of these prophecies about the end times, and he talks about in the last times, there will be false Christs, and there will be false prophets, and they will sign, they'll perform signs and wonders, just because somebody performs a sign and wonder does not mean they're from the Lord. Check their teaching first. Let me, let me go on here though. Jesus says, and he, in verse 28, is this statement that I remember one, some, one time somebody asked me about, and I'm like, I don't really know, um, where he says that where the dead body is, there will be the vultures. I, I believe this makes perfect sense to the people Jesus was speaking to because they know this story of Abram and they know wherever this corpse is, the vultures will gather this is right after he tells the people that false prophets and false Christs will arrive, rise. It's a fitting metaphor and illusion about what happens when you are waiting in faithfulness. The vultures show up to eat what you've declared to the Lord. Things are set. They're prepared for 
the covenant God will make. And Abram, he's waiting on the Lord. If you don't know what to do next, just do what the last thing God has told you to do. Stay in faithfulness. The problems come in. The problems will come in for Abram when he won't wait in faithfulness. Wait in faithfulness. Number two here, the terms of the covenant. Um, Starting in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. I noticed recently when I go on any web page, there's a little thing on the bottom, a little footer. And unless I hit accept, it won't go away. It's terms and services. And I have no idea what I'm agreeing to. I have been conditioned by Apple products not to read things. I just want it out of my sight. So I hope they're not going to come by and they're like, oh, we're here to take your pinky. Um, You said accept. If you don't want to see that stupid bar, you have to hit accept. Um, But what am I agreeing to? I've been conditioned to do this by Apple products for years. In verses 12 through 16, God speaks to Abram, and he speaks to him closer than he's ever spoken to him before. And what does he tell him? He tells him the terms of the covenant that he is going to make with him. This isn't the terms and services of your smartphone. He actually wants Abram to hear this and to understand it before the covenant is signed. And he is about to meet with Abram in a way that he's never met with him before. In verse 12, we see what happens when God draws near. In the Old Testament, when God draws near to his people, you read some very similar responses. That similar response is fear. This covenant mirrors in many ways the covenant God makes with the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20 in smoke and fire on the mountain. God first speaks to his people. And his people say to Moses, speak for us, speak for him to us. We can't endure his voice. And on the whole mountain is fire and smoke. And in here, we are about to see fire and smoke as well. God is about to draw near to Abram. And right here in verse 12, and the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell on him. That is what we feel like before a holy God Because no matter how righteous we think we are, next to God, we are a great darkness. Right before Jesus Christ dies, it says there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. When when Isaiah saw the Lord in chapter 6 of Isaiah, after King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated high and lifted up. You know what he says? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we can approach the throne of grace with confidence, but we should do so respectfully to understand to be in the presence of a holy God and that I can only do it because of the righteousness of Christ. I can only do it because of the righteousness he's given me now because my own righteousness. Because we see in Isaiah, he says, woe to me for I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That word for woe right there, it literally means to come apart at the seams. Some translations, I will surely die. God is coming closer to Abram than he's ever before in verse 13. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain Don't suppose, not hope, not maybe guess. Know for certain. We talked about faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen. Abram says, what evidence do I have that I'll possess the land? And God's like, I will give you evidence. It's myself. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. Here we have a shift. God wants Abram to know the whole story. Most of the time, God just gives you the next step. And you just take the next step of faithfulness. The next step of faithfulness. Right here, the Lord is telling Moses about the Exodus. He's talking to him about the slavery in Egypt. I'm going to give you offspring, and they're going to be slaves. I want you to think about this. So Abram is desiring the promise, and God is telling him, you're going to have kids, and they're going to be slaves. That's a hard thing. I don't know how I would feel about that. You know, but God's not hiding anything from him. God's not hiding anything from him. He wants to tell him, here is my plan, at least for this section right here. They're going to be slaves. So when they went into Goshen, the land of slavery of Egypt, Abram knew this at this moment right here. God speaks to Abram. 
If he wants to object or reject it at this time, this is the time to do it. God doesn't do this with everyone. Most of the time, he just gives us the next step. Abram, with Abram, he gives him the steps far ahead, even, beside, even beyond his life, his son's life, his grandson's life, his great-grandson's life. In verse 14, we realize it's not all bad. In verse 14, but I, will, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So God is going to use this opportunity to judge the Egyptians. In chapter 12, we saw the Egyptians already not great people, because Abram has a just fear that they're going to kill him and take his wife. God's going to use this opportunity to judge them because they will be heavy-handed in what they do to the Israelites. He rounds the number to about 400 up for Abram, but Abram, but Abram knows the plan of God here is more than this. It's not all bad. Speaking of the Exodus, it will actually accomplish God's purpose. He will use the opportunity to judge the Egyptians and to bless Abram's people. And in this, he will fulfill Abram's the promise he had made to Abram all the way in chapter 12, that those who bless him will be blessed and those who curse him will be cursed. And Egypt is the prime example of this. When Egypt blesses the children of Israel in the end of this book right here, when they go into the land of Egypt, to the land of Goshen, they are invited as guests and they are protected from famine. And Egypt is never more blessed when they bless Israel. Then in the Exodus, they are never more cursed than when they curse Israel. This is something in the United States we need to always be clear on. We want to curse Israel? We'll see what happens. They're never more cursed when they curse Israel, never more blessed than when they bless Israel. And this right here, verse 14 right here, will bring judgment on that nation um, that they serve, and they shall come out with great possessions. They, 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 They pillage Egypt more than any invading army will ever do. And they do so willingly. People just give them their finances as they leave. Verse 15. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Remember how in the beginning of this, we talked about how Abram might be somewhat nervous that these four armies who defeated all these other nations might come back in revenge? Don't have to worry. You're going to live to a good old age. Remember this one pastor said, until I do the work that God has for me, I'm immortal. And in verse 16, the Lord continues his, his terms, of the, terms of service here. Terms of the covenant, not terms of service. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. Sometimes we see the chaos in our life, but it's actually the plan of God. You see all the suffering in Exodus is part of the plan of God. When he brings them back, it'll be at the right time. And in Galatians, we find that at the right time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law. In verse 16, we see under the veil of how God deals with nations. God has a threshold for his judgment. What we call this in theological circles is called the forbearance, the divine forbearance of God. It's different from forgiveness. Forgiveness means the debt is clear. We talked about this last week in depth. Forbearance, it means God is not going to judge you this second. He's going to give you time to repent. And during that time to repent, if you continue to do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord, judgment increases. So God, the just judge of all the world, he gives time for repentance, but there will come a time where the bill comes due. And he's saying, when they come back in the fourth generation, it's the Amorites' time to be judged. And that is when they go back and where God gives them the land. This is repeated time and again. God does not delight in judging or pouring out his wrath on the nations. He gives them time. In Revelation chapter 6, the martyrs are told to wait a little while longer before the final judgments of God until, their, until the number of their brothers is complete, the number of martyrs is complete. So God is waiting on this world until the right time before he unveils his judgment. And nobody knows the day or the hour on that one. Number three, verses 17 through 20, the cutting of the covenant. I call it the cutting of the covenant because the word that's translated in your English translations for he made a covenant, signed a covenant, or whatever, um, whatever verb that's being used literally means to cut. And there's a reason for that. The word that is translated in our English translations as made means literally to cut. 
Verse 18, God cut a covenant with Abram. Abram cut the animals in two and made a path. God walks through this and he seals signs and cuts this covenant. 17, 17 is one of the most important verses in the scriptures. I talked about this last week, but if you don't understand it, it just seems kind of weird. Verse 17, then the sun gone down and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passes between the pieces. When I'm done today, when you read that verse, you're going to get chills. This is, when you read this, you're wondering what is this smoking flaming pot and what is the flaming torch? The better question though is who? Who is this? This is God himself. It's not him in his full glory, but in the manner in which will not kill Abram to see. He has drawn near and his very presence has induced fear into Abram, but he is still, he's still veiling his glory so Abram does not die when God passes by. A theophany, according to R.C. Sproul, is an outward visible manifestation of the invisible God. God will do this a few times in the Old Testament, but all of this would be pointing to Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, the image of the invisible God. Moses encounters God in the burning bush. The Israelites wander in the desert, are led by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. This is why the writer of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. This covenant is a blood covenant. It is a covenant written in blood. God walks through a river of blood made by the animals that Abram cut in half. Then when it comes to the sign of the covenant, the sign of this covenant, God tells Abram, all of his people, for all generations, until the new covenant, to observe circumcision. That they should bear in their flesh a reminder of God's promise. I wonder if Abram's like, couldn't it just be like the Noahic one where it's just a rainbow? (laughs) Do we have to do this? Yes, you do. They have a reminder. Every time they look down, they have a reminder of the promise God had made. Whenever, whenever Abram is doubting from this time on, he will just, after circumcision, he'll just have to look down and remember when the pot, when the flaming pot and the, and the flaming torch pass through the animals. When God establishes his covenant with Moses and the people, he, takes, he makes them take a lamb and kill it and put the blood on the thres- threshold and the doorpost. Jesus at the Last Supper around his disciples, takes the wine and says, this is the covenant in my blood. And in verse 17, verse 17, it might seem like a weird occurrence, but when you understand this is God making his covenant with Abram, and normally it would be two people walking through, it's just God. This is an unconditional covenant. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 17 through 20. If you want to know what this is about, Hebrews tells us. Scripture interprets Scripture. We don't have to wonder. We just look for what other other people in Scripture talked about this as well. Verses 17 through 20, it's up here on the screen. You guys are awesome. So on the ball today. So when God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, we're talking about this right here. This is what the author of Hebrews is talking about. He guaranteed it with an oath. This is the oath right here. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is glorious. This is amazing. When you get the call that changes your whole world, read verse 17. Read verse 17. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And know this. For Abraham and for the people reading this, And hearing this, they understood the Caesarean vassal covenant and that that is being enacted here. Pronouncements and promises have been made. Normally, it would be both parties would walk through the split animals. 
And the implication was obvious. In fact, they would, make a, they would make an oath that if they should break this covenant, they should die. But God, the one who cannot die and the one who cannot lie, walks through these bodies. He walks through these bodies. You know what he's saying here? If I break my covenant, I should die. But he can't die. And he cannot lie. These are the two unchangeable things about God. In the Caesarean vassal covenant, if you break this covenant, what happened to these animals should happen to you. It's a blessing if you keep it and a curse if you do not. This covenant is unilateral and unconditional. Abram doesn't walk through with the Lord. God is the only party walking through. Under Moses, all the people walk through the waters. They walk through the desert. They make their covenant at Mount Sinai when the Ten Commandments are given. And they all, every single one of them, including us, whether we knew the commandments or not, because he's put his law into our hearts, has broken that covenant. And what should happen to us is what happened to those animals. So we go back to the, we go to this next covenant, the Mosaic covenant, in which God makes his covenant with his people, do this and you will live, do this and you will die, choose life, and everyone chooses death. So it would take a descendant of Abram to live the perfect life that you and I could not live, to be under these covenants, to live this perfect life, and then to take upon himself the curse you and I deserve. Verse 17, when you read it from now on, you're going to be like, God himself fulfills my part of the covenant. And what happened to those animals happened to him. And because he could not die, he for the son to be incarnate into this world, to be fully God and fully man, to die on the cross, seals a new covenant and all who would believe will be adopted into his family. We know in our souls that we have broken faith with God and we know that the soul that sins shall die. All of us deserve judgment and justice, but our God walks through and establishes his covenant with Abram by himself. So he himself will send us a sign. The virgin will be with birth and she shall be, and she, she shall give birth. And we shall call him wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God, father of what is everlasting. And he, the seed of Abraham, will be hung on a tree and he will take upon him the curse that we so willingly worked for. And God remembers his covenant. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know if you're in a time of suffering. Maybe you are, maybe you're not, but your time is coming. That's a downer for a Sunday morning, but it is. And you'll be in a storm and you'll wonder, what can I do in this storm? And that is why in Hebrews what I read to you, we have this hope as an anchor for our souls. Nothing else. Nothing else. No religious observance, no hype person screaming at you is the hope for our soul. This is the hope for our soul. That when God wanted to convince Abram, I really mean my promises, he swears upon the greatest thing he can and there is nothing greater, so he swears upon himself and by two unchangeable things, it is impossible for God to lie and it's impossible for him to die. He walks through the valley of suffering for on our behalf. God promises to Abram the land that God had promised to Abram in history, it will be switched from ruler to ruler. The world changes. The land God promised Abram switches from world power to world power. And after 400 years of silence, that's the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the, beginning, the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. And how many years did God say that the people would be in the land of slavery? 400 years. An angel appears to a young girl who is scared out of her mind. And he tells her, do not fear. This young girl will be told what is done in her is by the Holy Spirit. And in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 through 55 is her song of praise. And in verse 55, can you pull that up for me? So you might ask yourself, what does this have to do with us today? I mean, that's the Old Testament. That's the Old Covenant. What does this have to do with us today? 
There's pastors that say we should unhitch from the Old Testament. The New Testament doesn't believe that. And Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus Christ in her song of praise, says this. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abram and to his offspring forever. So my question for you is to you today, if God remembers his promise, Mary had said he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy in verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abram and to his offspring forever. So my question for you today is why are you so worried for the future when God has remembered his mercy and his promises forever? Worship team, would you come up at this time? This was the second covenant. Next two weeks, we'll be talking about the new covenant, the fifth covenant in the scriptures, the preparation of Jesus's life and his entry into Jerusalem, which people shout in praise and fulfillment of prophecy. Then on Good Friday, we'll talk about the terms, the prophecy and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And on that same day, we'll talk about the cutting of this covenant in which the Son of Man and the Son of God will lie bleeding and dying and dead on the cross. His the communion and the passion. Then Then on Easter morning, resurrection morning, we'll remember the fulfillment of that covenant. Abram had to wait. He had to wait until he got to the Lord to see the fulfillment of, his co- of, of the promises spoken to God. The disciples had to wait three days, and we don't have to wait at all. So my challenge to you today is this is not a morality story, but this is hope when all things are falling that we have an anchor for our souls. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? This is our moment to reflect on the word of God today. There's one thing that we're supposed to take from this is to know that God has made his covenant and he keeps his covenant, he keeps his promises. The writer of Hebrews says, this is the anchor for our souls. Where are you anchored at? When, when you start falling to despair, and so many of us, everybody does. David, King David did. And he would say, why are you so downcast, oh my soul? But you've had prayers like that. Where you're like, why do I continue feeling like this when I know this isn't the case? Trust in the Lord. He's the one who walks through the, walks through the sacrifice. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? Thank you very much.